According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes to the scriptures. Join me in Ephesians chapter 2, and we're moving on to verse 11 this morning. Verses 11 through 22, we've uh, tied together all of the details, I think, that, that we need to out of verses 8 through 10. And, of course, that wraps up verses 1 through 10. By grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. And so we dealt with these, uh, these issues, and pretty much tied together all those issues there on Wednesday night. So we're ready this morning for the therefore, right? Therefore. And what proceeds is a, is a follow-up to... The, uh, the marvelous paragraph about getting saved, and it's not a repeat. It's not about getting saved. It's about the new position that we have in Christ. And so we're going to highlight these things for us here this morning. Let's start with a word of prayer, asking for our Father's blessing upon our time in the truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for all of the grace that you supply towards us day by day, moment by moment. Father, we thank you for the book of Ephesians and all the lessons you've been teaching us, the, uh, the amazing benediction of chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, the amazing wish prayer, verses 15 through 23, the amazing chapter of salvation in, in uh, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. And it seems as each section we come to has just been more and more amazing than anything else, Father. And Thank you for opening our eyes. Thank you for opening our ears, softening our hearts, making the Word of God uh, so uh, real to each one of us. We continue to look forward to more blessings as we start this next section. And again, thank you for being faithful. We thank you and we praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. You might recall the beginning of chapter 2, we had a heading that was called, You Were Dead But God. And that was the, the paragraph heading I gave to verses 1 through 10, because that's how chapter 2 began. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And so the doctrine, the, the, the wonderful uh, refresher course on evangelism and the, the blessings of what happens when we get saved, all of those things... Uh, are presented in those first ten verses, and you can summarize those with, you were dead, but God. Now we have a different contrast. As we look at verses 11 through 22, you were separate and excluded. You were separate and excluded, but Christ. All right? And so you can tell, obviously, this is going to be a bit of a different approach. It's going to be a different message, parallel clearly, because it's a contrast between what you used to be and what you are. Uh, but that's, that's where the comparison stops, because it's not a salvation issue in this paragraph. And I'm going to prove that to you before uh, too long, maybe even before today. <laughs> okay? uh, in, the, in the first two or three classes, it should be very obvious that this is no longer uh, a contrast between the unregenerate and the regenerate, the, uh, the unbeliever and the believer, the uh, the lost and the saved. Although, 
many folks take it that way, and I think that's what causes the puzzles and the problems and the other issues they have to kind of work around because when they're viewing this as a salvation issue on a salvific basis, it, uh, it causes more problems than it solves. And so if we can avoid making that mistake up front, then I think we do ourselves a huge favor down the road. We also have our first imperative of the book. There were no imperatives in chapter 1 and no imperatives for the first half of chapter 2. We have our first imperative and it comes right here and it is a command to remember. Therefore, remember that formerly you the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. And I'm going to fix that. I don't like the translation so-called who are called uncircumcision by those who are called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And we're going to spell out each one of those items. Each one of those is a Gentile disadvantage and a Jewish advantage that applied prior to the church age. That was a description of how the the circumstances were for Jews and Gentiles prior to the day of Pentecost, prior to the church age beginning. And this is the contrast we're looking at here in uh, uh, these 11 verses, or 12 verses, I guess, inclusive, from 11 down through 22. I'm just going to read some more. I'm going to read the totality of it before we go back to the top so we get a sense for where this is going. So remember that formerly... This is what you were, you, the Gentiles in the flesh. And that's a collective you, and we're going to talk about the collective corporate body and, and what that's about. Remember, you, y'all, you, you Gentiles, were at that time separate and excluded. But now, in Christ Jesus, and again, you'll spot the little red exclamation point there, because this is our in Christo expression that we've been emphasizing throughout the book of Ephesians, The positional truth doctrine, that is, church-age believer priests are baptized into personal union with Jesus Christ. But now, whatever you used to be, we have the but now. You, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And obviously we understand how this works, and we understand it's the only way to be in Christ, is to be born again by grace through faith, and it's the blood of Christ that saves us. It's also the blood of Christ that makes everything else connected to our salvation possible. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. By a, and well, there's going to be doctrines on all of this, okay? This is not the sin barrier between an unbeliever and God. This is the racial barrier between the chosen people and the non-chosen people, the Jews and the Gentiles. This is the barrier of the dividing wall. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity which the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. And so this is a reconciliation of Jew and Gentile that previously had been had a barrier between them, previously had a dividing wall, including enmity. And that enmity was resolved by the blood of Christ. And the church age does not have the enmity that previous dispensations had. That he might make 
The verb to make there is a creation verb, katibzo. It's the same verb we looked at a couple weeks ago when we were talking about being created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That he might create the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. The church is a new creation. We are not, not Jews. We are not Gentiles. The two have been created into one. And it is one new man that never existed before. But now it does. And thank God, this is where we are in Christ. Might make the two into one, establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. By it having been put to death, by it, I'm sorry, by it having put to death the enmity. Now this is something that if you, unless you've studied this passage, unless you've studied other things that relate to the cross, hopefully this is going to expand our thinking to realize Jesus was doing an awful lot of work on that cross, more than we give him credit for. The different functions of what he was accomplishing, the different payments that were made, the different values that were assigned to the blood of Christ. We want to be clear on this. Because I think otherwise we just kind of get trapped into a very narrow way of thinking that, well, he was paying for my sins. Of course, I'm not denying that. Obviously, he was paying for my sins. What else was he doing? Was it bigger than that? Okay, Is that all that he was doing? And, and what exactly is the blood of Christ valuable for? Well, we know it cleansed the heavenly temple. We know that it ratifies the, the new covenant that hasn't started yet in the millennial kingdom. We know it paid for our sins. Okay, uh, We know that it satisfied the justice of God. We know that it removed the Adamic sin uh, estate. There's a lot of things. We can, we, I'm probably up to six or seven things now that the blood of Christ accomplished on the cross. And then I don't think we're done. I think we're going to find more by the time we're finished with Ephesians. Well, here's one for you. Um, put to death the enmity. All right. And it's the cross that did it. And I love the fact that we have both metaphors in view here. We have the cross. Are we talking about the lumber? Just like when we talk about the blood... Are we talking about the hemoglobin? Don't confuse the metaphor with the reality. The, the blood represents the spiritual work that he was accomplishing, just like the cross represents the spiritual work that he was accomplishing. And, and the fact that we have both metaphors in the same context really is very helpful for us so that we don't get uh, confused between the metaphor and the reality. Because it's not the hemoglobin, it's not the, uh, the lumber, but it's the work that he did while he was on the cross, shedding his blood and laying down his life and atonement for each and every one of us. All right. Having been put, having put to death the enmity, and he came and he preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. Which coming is this? When, when did this happen? How does this work? Okay, stay tuned. <laughs> All right. And he preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. He preached to both groups. The Gentiles were far away, the Jews were near, but not as near as they are now in Christ. We're going to, discuss, we're going to describe, the, I think, the, the flawed logic that takes uh, some people uh, into a... Uh, it's, uh, I don't want to say... It's like, what's the opposite of replacement theology? It, it's um, where they say Gentiles who get saved kind of become quasi-Jews... Uh, because we're brought near. 
And, and they, they point to this, and they also point to uh, the tree metaphor and say, we're grafted into Israel's tree. We're part of Israel now. And a bad approach to the tree metaphor in, in, uh, in the book of Romans. So stay tuned, because he's preaching to both. He's preaching peace to the, to the Gentiles that are far away, and he's pre- pe- preaching to the Jews who were near. The very Jews, I must point out, were the cause of the enmity. Okay, we're going to discuss, where did that enmity come from? Who was it that was name-calling? The uncircumcision received that name by those who were called the circumcision. So stay tuned on that. For through Him we both have our access in one Spirit to the Father. And praise God for that. Again, we're baptized in Christ. We are positionally in Christ. We stand at the throne of grace. We address the Father. We have every right to be there, not in ourselves, but in Christ. We have every right to stand before the Father and before His throne. Both Gentiles and Jews in Christ. The Jews didn't have that access uh, any more than the Gentiles did. They had a, a priesthood that one guy one day a year could stand before God's glory, but he was pretty lonely in there, don't you think? We're going to talk about that too. Because the Levitical priesthood never had this kind of access that we have in Christ. And praise God for that. So through Him, as Jesus Christ, we both, Gentiles and Jews, have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. That's what you used to be. But now in Christ... You are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. When it says fellow citizens with the saints, don't think that that makes us part of the commonwealth of Israel that was mentioned earlier. They too have to be transferred into the royal family of God, called God's household. Right? This is the heavenly royal family of God himself. This is not the house of David or the descendants of Abraham or anything else that relates to the Jewish people. It is Jew and Gentile being placed together in Christ in the Father's house. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So that's not putting us into Israel at all. We're not being turned into Jews. In fact, Israel rejected the cornerstone. They stumbled on the the rock of offense. But those who believe, just like the Gentiles who believe, We are placed in Christ and we are made a part of the royal family of God. In whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Israel had a temple. We are a temple. What a difference. Okay? That was a Louis Berry Schaefer quote and I use it a lot because it's profound. Israel had a temple. The church is a temple. And that is so fundamentally different. So we're growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. All right. So we have, again, more positional truth emphasis there with the in Christ indicators. And, as you might imagine, we've got a lot of work to do. All right. To cover these verses moving forward, there is a lot there. And and we want to teach it carefully. We want to teach it accurately. We want to avoid both errors. The error of replacement theology that says God's done with Israel and the church is, is the replacement. That's total garbage and heresy. But then the other extreme 
that says, well, the Gentile believers now, we get brought into Israel and now we're part of Israel or we're spiritual Israel. That is just as wrong. That is just as much heretical. And we're going to show that Israel is Israel, the Gentiles are the Gentiles, and we are neither. Because we are one new man. And uh, i got to find a brighter color. i got to find a better emphasis marker. i got to do something. <laughs> so that jumps out the page. Every time you look at that verse, the one new man has to jump out of the page and remind you that this never existed before. Jesus Christ told Peter, on this rock I will build my church. It's a future creation that did not exist in the, uh, in the uh, prior dispensations. All right. Therefore, remember, the wonderful essay on salvation in Christ is now followed by a different contrast. It is not the unbeliever-believer contrast. It is the Jew-Gentile contrast. And then once that's established, it's reconciled in the glorious new man reality in Christ. The wonderful essay on salvation in Christ. That's, I think we're solid, right? If there's any questions on that, bring them up on Wednesday night. But I, I don't think there's any, any room to doubt that when we started chapter 2 with three verses about what it was like as an unbeliever, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Okay, you got three verses describing what every one of us can testify to. If you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you can testify to the time prior to that when all you had was physical life. You had physical life, but you didn't have spiritual life. That's what those verses deal with. Because you were spiritually dead, but God made you spiritually alive. He made us alive together with Christ. And so... It's, it's beautiful to go through those verses, and, and, and we love those verses. It's a great contrast, a saved versus a lost contrast, but that's not the contrast in 11 through 22. It's a different contrast. This one is a Jew-Gentile contrast. And the, uh, the reconciliation of Jews and Gentiles, we see, is the uh, positional truth that's in Christ. Right, that we, of course, enter into when we get saved. So, if we're clear on that, then we can uh, start looking at these details. But the Jew-Gentile contrast and the glorious new man reality in Christ. So, here's the problem. You, formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh. Does that make you laugh? Makes me laugh. What other kind of Gentiles are there besides Gentiles in the flesh? I find that a little amusing. But it's there for a reason. And it's there also so that it's parallel with the circumcision, which is also done in the flesh. A reminder that we're talking in, in physical realms. We're talking about physical requirements. The laws of physical requirements. Thank God the church age is not based upon the laws of physical requirements. Uh, our priesthood is based on an indestructible life that we have in Christ. But Israel and their stewardship, physical requirements. You had to be born a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And to be a priest, you had to be born a descendant of Levi. All the physical requirements, we have none of those. In the church age, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile or male or female or bond or free or whatever else. Once you're born again, you're a part of the new creation in Christ and, and part of this royal family of God. So formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision... You know, some names are uh, flattering, some names are insulting. This one's uh, insulting. 
It's designed as a pejorative. It's not that it's not true. It's very true. But why is it an insult? Why is it an insult? Well, look at who's calling them this. It's the circumcision that's calling them this. And I don't like the, we're going to deal with the so-called. It's the same expression. It's the same uh, participle of, of Lego that we have here. It's the same idiom in both examples. So my view is translated the same way both times so that you maintain the parallel expressions in both. So the Gentiles in the flesh, the ones called uncircumcision by the ones called circumcision. The circumcision, by the way, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. And so that that tells you uh, some other details there too. Um, Totally different than what we have in Christ. So this is the contrast. And what's the solution? To turn Gentiles into Jews? No. The solution is to turn Jews and Gentiles together into a new man. And that's how this passage breaks it down. The imperative to remember is the present active imperative of... Let me work on the pronunciation here. Menemon uo. Menemon uo. Okay? M-N-E-M-O-N-E-U-O. And it's a, it's a strange spelling and it's a strange pronunciation. And it's the same thing that we have in English when you have any kind of mnemonic device that helps you remember something. And the, the worst part, you know, do you ever use mnemonic devices to help you remember things? You can, you know, associate things with other things or you can have other devices. Maybe you have things in alphabetical order or whatever. You use acronyms or you, whatever, okay? There's, there's a thousand different methods out there to try to remember stuff. And probably because we're mostly not any good at it. And so we have to work hard at uh, finding ways to trick ourselves into remembering things. And so we call those mnemonic devices, which to me is, is cruel. Because how do you spell mnemonic? You have to remember that it's spelled with an M, N, and that just seems grossly unfair. Maybe I'm the only one. But we have the verb here. Strong's number 3421. It is used 21 times. Um, not always as an imperative. Sometimes it's an indicative. It's just talking about things that are remembered. Uh, we also have a root that goes well with this with several other cognate expressions. I think um, including some uh, nouns that simply refer to burials, that refer to tombs or graves when it comes to that. Do you remember how to find the root? You right-click the word, you bring up your word study. Here's your color wheel with all the ways that it's translated. Remember, bear in mind, recall, thinking, make mention. Sometimes it's used in a prayer context. If you remember somebody in your prayers, you are making mention of them in your prayers. And so not only are you remembering somebody before the Lord, you are reminding God of that person before the Lord. That's kind of a nice idiom there, too. Here's how it's used in the Septuagint. All right, and here's the root panel. And any one of you, you can all do this with your own Logos installations. So right-click the word, bring up the lemma, bring up the word study. You're going to find your root panel there is the third root down. And this is where you find all of your extended family members to the, uh, to the, the verb that you're looking at. Okay. In this case, we're looking at Menemon Uo with a little orange dot there to help you remember, where does it fit in this family? Okay, it's near the top. It's one of the most commonly used forms in this family. 
But this other verb, mimniskamai, is used uh, just a couple more times, 23 times instead of 21 times. And then this noun, menemeon, uh, is used 40 times. Menemeon, which is a noun for tomb or grave. Which I don't know if that, does that seem odd to you? But a tomb or a grave is, is a place where your departed ones can be remembered. It's a, it's a place of remembrance. It's a place where you might come to honor them or to remember them or to pay your respects or something of that, of that nature. And they viewed it, the Greeks anyway, in their choice of vocabulary, viewed a tomb as a place of memory. And uh, which is um, probably nicer than uh, other words you can come up with. Like the word sarcophagus. It's a Greek word that talks about the flesh being eaten. That uh, you put a body in a box, and after the flesh is eaten, all, the, all that's left is the bones. And so, sarks and phagamai, and you have flesh eating. And that's what a sarcophagus is. It's a flesh-eating box. Okay? That's a little bit more gruesome. So, let's just stick with memories. Okay? That when you're, when you're at the grave, you don't see the sarcophagus. It's in the tomb. And you can just come to the tomb and have pleasant memories of... Uh, of your departed loved ones. All right. So remember, and, and so we have all of these. The one we did last week was a, kind of a short one, honestly. This one's a little bit longer, mid-range, I would say. It's not one of the longest I've seen. Uh, but uh, you can look at the, uh, the noun, the verb, the other verb, a different noun. Um, another noun that speaks of remembrance, that's used seven times. A compound verb of hupomenesco, so it's the same verb, menesco, just has the hupo in front of it. And then anamimnesco, to be reminded of something or to remind. Anamnesis, remembrance. Mnemonusan, um, memory. Hupomnesis, that's the reminder itself. Eponamimesco, man, to remind again. How many reminders do we need? Usually more than one. Okay, usually several reminders. And so there you combine an epi with a hoopa with a, no, an epi with an ana with a mimnesco. Then menemene and menesco, mimnesco. All right, all of those words together, all throughout the New Testament, if you add them all up, 124 places throughout the New Testament where these dozen or so uh, terms are employed. Interestingly enough, and then, of course, you can find usages in the, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew zakir, like Zechariah and so forth, for the remembrance that happens there. The best thing I love about all the memory studies I've ever done in the Bible is that God himself remembers. God is the subject of many of the Hebrew verbs for remembering. And we might even find that he's the subject of these Greek verbs in the New Testament as well. God who never forgets, who knows all things. Obviously, he's omniscient. He's not able to forget anything. But he is sovereignly capable of not remembering the things he does not want to remember ever again. Like our sins. Thank God for that. Okay? He chooses not to remember them. I think the, uh, the mindfulness is a good rendering. I like using mindfulness. That if you're mindful of something, that means... You're remembering it. You're thinking about it. You put it in the forefront of your thinking. You're not just winging it through the Christian walk, but you're mindful of the things that you should keep mindful of. 
And that's what we have here in Ephesians 2.11. We want to be mindful of our new position in Christ. We want to be mindful, particularly, uh, you know, those of us that have a, we might think of ourselves as Gentile background uh, church members, okay, more so than Jewish background church members, but whichever, we're, we're now a new creation in Christ and we need to be mindful of that. Both groups need to be mindful of that because there's no boasting in any of this, even if maybe one of the sides thinks there is some boasting with respect to this, okay? So, remember. Um, the root is worth looking at, and I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it. However, I did find a sampling of, uh, oh, six verses or so, that uh, some of my favorite remember verses, and maybe you have your own favorite uh, remember verses, and if I missed yours, then let me know when class is over, and I'll add it to these notes. Uh, but these were my favorites. Uh, uh, key verses for practical Christian living. The simplest one is, remember Lot's wife. <laughs> what, a, what a Bible verse, right? Short, sweet, makes the point. Um, not quite as short as Jesus wept, but still, it's fairly short. Remember Lot's wife. And why would you ever want to forget Lot's wife? Because think about what happened to her. And the, the, obviously, the, the, uh, the message is about looking back when you're supposed to be looking forward, when you're supposed to be obeying the Lord and, and pursuing his will. Okay, and uh, she did not. She looked back. She she was missing what she was leaving behind, or she was regretting the uh, the departure out of Sodom for whatever reason. So uh, remember Lot's wife. How about uh, John fifteen twenty? Remember the word that I said to you: a slave is not greater than his master. This is Jesus talking to the disciples. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Don't be shocked when, because you name the name of Christ, you face the, the adversity that you face. We get that it's going to grow more and more. I'm convinced that the hedge is dropped in our nation. And I'm convinced that there's going to be more and more anti-Christian hostility, uh, not just uh, in uh, the ways that we've been accustomed to up until now, with uh, scorn and disparagement and whatever else. There will be physical harm. All right? So are we ready for it? If not, then we need to remember that a slave is not greater than his master. Who do we think we are? Do we think we're somehow exempt from persecution or suffering? Our Savior wasn't. And if he didn't get a free pass, why do I think I get a free pass? So he, he was whipped, he was scourged, he was crucified, and didn't deserve any of that. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. And all these things they will do for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. So we better be aware of this. This is another remember imperative that, that uh, jumps out at me. That's, this is something I want to keep in mind day by day in my Christian walk, right along with remember Lot's wife. I want to remember this one here in Ephesians 2.11. I want to remember that I am a new man in Christ. That the former enmity between Jews and Gentiles is gone in Christ. Okay? Coming back, by the way, you realize after the rapture sounds? What happens after the rapture sounds? What happens when the body of Christ is removed? Those distinctions return. The enmity returns. We'll discuss some of those things as well. Colossians 4.18 I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. 
Grace be with you. Remember my imprisonment. And this one jumps out at me too. Every time I read the voice of the martyrs in their monthly newsletters, or I read, or we have these missionary reports that come to us, like the two we had last month. And uh, you know, remember the uh, our brethren in Ukraine, and remember our brethren in in uh, Pakistan. There's two on trial right now that may be executed. Two Christian brothers right now that may be executed in Pakistan over these trumped-up blasphemy charges. What they call blasphemy, anyway. <laughs> if a false god calls it blasphemy, is it really blasphemy? All right. Remember my imprisonment. And that's an imperative. Second uh, Timothy 2.8 Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. All right, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Don't don't lose track of that, because his life is our life. If it's not his resurrected life, what are we? But as he was raised from the glory to the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. This is a great objectivity check when when uh, you momentarily get your eyes off the Lord or you somehow forget that, uh, you know, you know any Bible verses and you start looking at your problems like an unbeliever would look at your problems or just in, in terms of pure humanity, stop that. Stop that and remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, that we are victors in Christ, that uh, this test we're faced with is not going to destroy us. We're, uh, we're victors in Jesus Christ. So remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Does that help in, in uh, a particular test you might be faced with right now? Of course it does. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. It's another favorite of mine. How about Hebrews 13? We've got two here. Verse 3 and verse 7. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourself are also one body. Part of loving one another, part of serving one another, part of realizing when one member suffers, we all suffer. And, um, you know, if you have this attitude, I'm glad that wasn't me, you know, too bad for them. What is that? You know, no, be mindful of them, identify with them. You're in Christ, they're in Christ, we share these sufferings as though in prison with them. Likewise, verse 7. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. This one's a favorite, okay? And more and more of them are in heaven now. The older I get, the more of my former pastors aren't, aren't here anymore, right? Colonel Thiem's in heaven, Ralph Braun's in heaven, Ken Jensen's in heaven, uh, Glenn Carnegie's in heaven. If I'm not careful, it's, the list in heaven is going to be longer than the list still on earth. Okay, of those that in times past were my pastors. Wait a minute. I think John Eichmann is the only one remaining now that's still on earth, and he's 91 years old. Okay, so, all right. But remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Because you're expected to carry on in your generation, and you're going to have generations remembering you. The men that you train, the next generation that you pass it on to. Because they pass the colors to you, you've got to pass those colors on as well. That's why it's always thrilling when you get a, a young man or two or three or four. You, get a, you start getting these young men praying about their giftedness and considering. Maybe I'm a pastor. Maybe I'm an evangelist. Maybe the Lord's calling me to, to preach the gospel. Those are exciting things. 
Remember those who led you. Uh, Revelation 2, 5 and 3, 3. Remember from where you have fallen and repent. Now this is a rebuke. This is a rebuke here. And um, the angel of the church of Ephesus, he left his first love. When the whole church that did that, it was the angel, it was the messenger, it was the pastor who left his first love. And he's told here, remember from where you have fallen and repent. This pastor needs to repent and he needs to return to his first love and his first deeds. Do the deeds that you did at first or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. (coughs) This is how a pastor gets fired in the church age. (coughs) Jesus Christ removes the lampstand. And this, if if this man doesn't repent then he is no longer the right-hand messenger held in the right hand of Jesus Christ and and accountable for that lampstand. Jesus Christ will take a different right-hand messenger and make him accountable for that lampstand. In chapter 3 and verse 3, Remember what you have received and heard, keep it and repent. If you do not wake up... Here's a pastor that thought things were going great and he didn't realize. (coughs) To the angel of the church in Sardis. Okay? We don't know his name, but it's the human being that's the pastor of this church. He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds. Okay? He's, he's done something. Just like, I mean, all these pastors have done something, even if they're no longer doing what they used to do. I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. How sad is that? When pastors start resting on the reputation of what they used to do or what they did in times past. And because and that maybe that reputation can carry for years or decades even. But Jesus knows better. You're dead. Okay? Did, did he lose his salvation? Obviously not. Did he lose his gift? Obviously not. But there is a death that's called operational death when through prolonged carnality, this believer is walking in darkness. You say, oh, that could never happen to me. Why not? Because you're a pastor? This guy's a pastor. Why do you think that you are, are somehow exempt from negative volition or hard-heartedness? You have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. You know, there's a process, and ultimately... The last stage is the sin unto death. But the process that takes you to that sin unto death, it's like gangrene. More and more starts dying off. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain. Do you have anything left? Which we're about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So what's scarier, dying the sin unto death or not dying the sin unto death? Where God leaves you here long enough to, uh, like with Manasseh, 55 years on the throne because there was a final assignment that was, that was waiting. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. That's language we usually see for Israel in the second advent. But this is a church age passage for a pastor and a personal visitation that Jesus Christ is about to make at, uh, at Sardis Bible Church. Okay? 
Yeah, Sardis. I think a lot of times we don't give credit enough for how active Jesus Christ is in every single lampstand on this world today. He is the head of the church and he's very involved. He walks in the midst of every lampstand and he holds every star in his right hand. All right. Anyway, those are my favorite remembering passages. I don't know if you have a favorite. If I missed one that that is very special to you that you've you've used for years and years, let me know. Well, uh, this is something we can talk about during the uh, the fellowship break. But we do have to talk about the formerly and the now. We have a formerly. It's used in verse 11, and it's repeated in verse 13. And uh, there's an at-that-time reference that's parallel to the formerly. And then we have the but-now reference. Okay, And all of these markers, we've got to pay attention to them. We've got to understand them for what they're saying. And then we have to ask ourselves, is this a repeat of the formerly but-now message from verses 1 through 10? Or is it a different formerly but now reference that we're dealing with something new new subject matter new context new reality in verses 11 through 22 and i've already given away the the spoiler alert it's not a repeat of the previous formerly but now okay and and nor should it have to be why why i think it's just lazy um study and lazy exegesis and lazy uh exposition to just see the, oh, formerly, but now, and just assume that it's the same thing that you've just finished studying in verses 1 through 10. No. Context is entirely different. So when you have formerly, it's the particle pata, P-O-T-E, used 28 times in the New Testament, then it's actually a, a, an undefined, it's a certain but undefined time period. Back in the day, once upon a time, formerly, uh, once, things like that. We can, we can talk about anything that preceded now, and you can say formerly, or there was a time, or remember when, that kind of a thing. But is this, and there's 28 of them, and they're not really worth looking through. That It just means then, or once, or at that time. And, and in most cases, there is something that follows that shows a contrast. What it used to be, what it is now. And that's what we're looking at here. Um, same vocabulary, even. If I highlight it, oh, let me just click on that. And so every pata is going to be highlighted there. And when we scroll back up to verses 2 and 3, there they are. Translated formally. Back when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, you formerly walked according to the course of this world. That was then. That was then. Back when you were dead. That was how you walked. And uh, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh. We all did. None of us were born saved. We all had the, the time of our life from physical birth to spiritual birth that we were physically alive and, and spiritually dead. This is true for everybody. But, now, God, okay? Here's what God did. And praise God for that. Is that the same context as what we're looking at here? Formally. Is this saying you were unbelievers? Formally. You. Collective you. 
the Gentiles in the flesh. And that's a great big collective you. Okay? That's every human being that's not Jewish is a Gentile. And, and in, in Ephesus, you had all kinds. You had Greeks. You had Lydians. You had Romans. You had, you had a, a variety of, of non-Jewish people groups that were all residents of, of Ephesus. They were all Gentiles in the flesh. And collectively, this was their lost estate. Or not lost estate. Let me rephrase that. Collectively, this was their non-covenant estate. Their uncircumcised estate. And when we go through the details here, they're called uncircumcision by the circumcision. And look at all the things they were separated from. This is not a repeat of you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. You know what? This is going to help. Let's put these side by side. So we can see the description on the left of the unbelievers. Right? Trespasses and sins, walking according to the course of this world, indulging the flesh, the desires of the flesh, by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. That's a, that's a vivid description of unbelievers. People in Adam, they're going to die and go to hell because they don't have eternal life. They're spiritually dead. That spiritual dead lost estate. Okay? That's not what we're looking at here with the exclusions. It's not you were dead, you were separate and excluded. You were separate and excluded. Okay? And so what's the solution for being separate and excluded? I can understand for being dead, the solution is to be made alive. That's a great solution. Okay? You were dead, but you were made alive in Christ. Okay? That was the contrast there. In this contrast, you were excluded. You were separated. In fact, you had a long catalog of disadvantages to you as a Gentile that Israel had the advantages as Jews. Including circumcision. The sign of the covenant the visible marker, the token of being party to God's unconditional Abrahamic covenant is the circumcision. They had it. You didn't. And even if you replicated the ritual, were you? did that turn you into a Jew? All right. You were at that time separate from Christ. Separate from Christ. Don't think of this as being an unbeliever. Think of this as your people group, your Gentile people group, you Greek, you Roman, you Babylonian, you Texan, you whatever you are, okay? You didn't have a Messiah. Only the Jews had a Messiah. Jesus was born of Israel, of the flesh. The Messiah was Jewish. The word Messiah is Hebrew. The promise is to the Jewish people in Hebrew, in their scriptures. It is Israel that had a promised Messiah. The Greeks never had a promised Messiah. The Romans never had a promised Messiah. Nobody. No Gentile nation. That's why, formerly, all Gentiles in this world were separate from the promise, expectation, and blessings of a coming Christ. They, didn't, they never had one. Second advantage, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. 
and actually alienated. Alienated. That's the footnote. We'll deal with the vocabulary when we get there. All right? Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. It might be a little touchy because we're not supposed to talk about aliens, right? And that uh, we, you know, we used to have words like natives and aliens. And, you know, some aliens were resident aliens that were going through a legal immigration process. Others were illegal aliens. And we're not supposed to use those words anymore. They're, they're hurtful. Okay? But they're biblical. The difference between a, a native-born and an alien is biblical. You were aliens, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. It's not, and, and we're going to ask ourselves, why are these terms insulting? Why is it insulting to call an uncircumcised Gentile uncircumcised? Why is that an insult? Only through the pride of the circumcision would then an insulting uh, uh, stigma be attached to the, uh, to the uncircumcised. Okay? And we can do this with anything. You can do this with anything that, that you receive by grace through faith, anything that you receive that you can't earn or deserve, and just point to somebody that doesn't have what you have and then stigmatize them for not having what you have, as if somehow you're better than them. Uncircumcision should not be a pejorative. Why is it being used that way? Well, look who's doing it. The, the called circumcision are the ones doing it. Separate from Christ. Uh, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. An alien, that's not an insult, it's just a reality. You know, if you think about, and I forget now, what are there, 200 countries in the world today, 187 countries, whatever there are, member states of the United Nations. Think about it. I am alien from 186 of those. I am native to one. Just in physical birth, right? So, if I go to Mexico, I'm an alien. If I go to Ukraine, I'm an alien. If I go to Kenya, I'm an alien. I can go to every country in the world except for my birthland, and I'm an alien. That's not insulting. All right. So these Gentiles were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And it's by the grace of God. Okay, this is his design. Babel was not an accident. It was the wisdom of, of God's glory to create the nations, to create the languages, to create the land boundaries. Likewise, to select Israel to be his covenant nation wasn't to condemn every other nation in the world, but to select one as a covenant nation for teaching, for ministry, for expectations they never lived up to, honestly. They will in the millennium, but up till now, they've been pretty uh, much failures. One or two exceptions, okay? Jonah did finally get to Nineveh and have a little bit of fruit there, and uh, Daniel was a blessing in Babylon, and yeah, you know, there were there were a handful of exceptions. Joseph was a blessing in Egypt, but more often than not, the Jewish people failed to bless their Gentile neighbors, and instead, the Gentile neighbors corrupted Israel with idolatry, with with uh, fornication, with all kinds of things. So you Gentiles were you didn't have a Messiah. You weren't citizens with the covenant nation on this earth. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. 
What covenants did the Greeks receive, or the Romans, or the Babylonians, or Egypt? None of them. They had no. They had no Christ. They had no covenants. Not as nations. Okay. Some. I will grant you that all of humanity had a Noahic covenant. I will grant you that all of humanity had a dominion mandate under the Adamic uh, expectations. But there was no nation as a nation that had a covenant except for Israel as a nation. Strangers to the covenants of promise. And this is an interesting tandem too when you, when you link together aliens and strangers. Aliens from the commonwealth, strangers to the covenants. Having no hope. That's like having no Christ. What hope did they have? What hope does any Gentile nation have? If America is destroyed today, what hope do we have? Is there an eternal destiny for America? Are there unconditional covenant promises? Will America still be here in the millennium? Will America even be here in the tribulation? Will America even be here when the rapture comes? What hope do we have? Have there been eternal promises given in American scriptures? Oh, wait. We have a Hebrew canon, we have a Greek canon. Okay? And the only earthly nation with covenants and the only earthly nation with an eschatological hope is Israel. And without God in the world. Without God in the world. You know, the Ephesians were so excited about Artemis. (laughs) They loved Artemis. And the temple of Artemis was there. They had pilgrims coming from everywhere to see Artemis. And they had these little silver statues they would sell and made a lot of money on these little idols to Artemis. And uh, it's, it's a big racket. Religion's always a racket. But what God did they have? Was Artemis real? As the Apostle Paul said, gods made by hands are not gods at all. These idols are human-built, you know, stupid things. What are you doing? Without God in this world. Okay? My Germanic background, who did we had Thor and Odin and, you know, whatever. Again, not real. At most, you get fallen angels posing as gods. Okay. Anyway, I always thought the Thor of the comic books was better than the Thor of mythology. Anyway, so yeah, my, my Germanic gods were pretty pathetic. Good thing I got saved. Okay, without God in the world. So the gods of the Egyptians, the gods of the Babylonians, the gods of the Romans. Julius Caesar felt that the Julian clan was descended from Aphrodite or Venus, what the Romans called her. And um, so he viewed himself as a son of God. Amazing what Satan does when he tries to pervert biblical truth and confuse people about who God is and who the son of God is. But the Romans didn't have any God in the world. The Greeks didn't have any God in the world. The Egyptians didn't have any God. Nobody did. Because the one true God, the creator God of the universe, the I Am, took Israel for his nation. And said, I am the God of Israel. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of Israel. So the Gentiles didn't have a God in this world. Israel did. This is the description here. Quite a bit different from uh, 
the, descript- the contrast in verses 1 through 10. It has nothing to do with whether these Gentiles are saved or not. It has nothing to do with whether Israel was saved or not. Do you ever consider that? You could be high priest and not even be a believer. As long as your dad was high priest, then you're next. This, this is maybe the biggest thing. Let me pull this up too. I should have started this before I started. Um, we just, uh, without thinking about it, I think we consider where we are in the church age. And in the church age, who we are in Christ is, is so everything, and it is so linked to our stewardship, it's inseparable. Until you are born again, you are not a member of the body of Christ. Even if you join a local church, even if you become a deacon or a pastor, or you're, you're very religious in your church involvement, until you're born again, you're not baptized into personal union with Jesus Christ. In the church age, stewardship requires salvation. Was that true in Israel? Did their stewardship require salvation? Not at all. Okay? When you think about their priesthood, when you think about the other 11 tribes, 12 tribes, when you think about their role as as an earthly nation, they were stewards whether they were saved or not. They walked through the Red Sea whether they were saved or not. They had an earthly deliverance. They had an earthly um, stewardship. Don't confuse it with our heavenly stewardship. Okay? Anyway, the uh, don't confuse salvation. This is not a salvific contrast. Now, the solution, and yes, the difference between then and now is the position in Christ. And so it is, you can think of it as, okay, well, they got saved, but it's, that's not the, the stress. The stress here is now the position. They had a position, but now there is a new position. And that position is called in Christ. Vastly superior than the, the, the uh, previous position of the Gentiles and the previous position of Israel. Every advantage that Israel had, every disadvantage the Gentiles had, set all of that aside, put Jew and Gentile together into one body in Christ, and you realize this is the positional truth that Ephesians is dealing with. And this sets the table for chapter 3. Alright? So, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are formerly far off, Now, look at the solution here. Is the solution to undo these other things? Uh, So if they were separate from Christ, is the solution to give Gentile nations a Messiah? Or to uh, give citizenship in the commonwealth of Israel? Did you become a citizen of Israel when you got saved? Uh, was Was the solution to give Gentiles the Jewish covenants of promise? No. The fact is, when a Gentile got saved then and when a Gentile gets saved now, they still have, I mean, they're not taken out of the Gentile position and put into the Jewish position. They're put into the in Christ position. Entirely different. So you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. And when it says brought near, that's not turned into Israel, okay? Brought nearer than that. Because they were near, and now they're even nearer in Christ. 
by the blood of Christ. He Himself is our peace who made both. Who made both. Keep in mind, this reconciling work was not a one-sided deal that fixed all the defects in those Gentiles and brought them into a Jewish uh, utopia of, uh, of wonderfulness. Okay? Because He made both. The godless Gentiles and the and Israel, the covenant nation of Israel. They too had to be brought into this nearness. Because even though they were nearer than the Gentiles, they weren't as near as we are in Christ. And so this is the nearness that they now have in Christ. Both groups broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, abolishing in his flesh the enmity. We'll deal with that. Why is that enmity? Jew-Gentile enmity. What causes that? How is that expressed? What is this about? Is this anti-Semitism? What is this? Enmity. We might have to invent some new words here to describe it, or we'll just use the enmity word. So that he might make the two into one new man. Notice, both. He might reconcile them both. It's not just fixing the problematic Gentiles. It's both. Okay? Man, where does the time go? We'll have to pick up on this Wednesday night. But the formerly and the now. We'll deal with Gentiles in the flesh. Are there any other kind? Called uncircumcision. Who gives those names? Who gives those names? We should, maybe we'll even have some name calling exercises. We can have a potluck or a church picnic where we do nothing but call each other names. And we'll learn these doctrines. We'll learn these principles in the meantime. Okay? Father, thank you for truth. Thank you for speaking the truth to us in love. Thank you for the position that we have in Christ. It's a position, yes, the, the Gentile position before the church age was, was not, did not have the advantage that Israel had before the church age. But that was then. This is now. We're in the church. And this church age is, is an incredible intimacy and access and privilege. And the more you open our eyes to see how incredible this is, Father, the more we're humbled and the more we're fearful. Because to whom much is given shall much be required. And it's, it's, it's fearsome to consider these things. So, Father, we thank you for this class. Thank you for the upcoming classes and all that you teach us. We give you the praise and the glory in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.